Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. One of the mistakes that I think we make about Jesus is reducing his whole life and ministry to a long weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Jesus came to die. And what I think we forget and what Darren and, and, and we are pushing into in this series is what does it look like to take Jesus' life seriously, not just his death seriously? Did Jesus just come to model for us and to redeem us through his death or did he actually come to teach us in his life how we can live too? And that's the kind of the premise that we'll work on today. And, and, um, and, and the question kind of keeps pushing in. Do we have, as disciples of Jesus, any reasonable expectation of transformation? Is salvation, if I can use that language, is believing in Jesus just about uh, going to heaven when we die? Or is it possible that we take Jesus seriously and he wants us to go to heaven before we die? He wants us to enter into the kingdom of the heavens, which he announced as being available for entry through him now. So what would it look like if the kingdom were to come? Because it has. What would it look like? In particular, you will look at today is trying to take Jesus seriously when he talks about anger. So if you have Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter five, we're going to look at three or four passages very, very quickly and then uh, try and, and build on this um, in, the, in the time we have. This is probably something that we could probably spend quite a bit of time on. But I just want to introduce it this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 says this. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is his inaugural message inviting people into the new reality. He says this. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you this, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. This is strong language, isn't it? And notice the three levels here. The first level is, is this, uh, who is angry. Please notice, not gets angry is angry. This is a persistent state by which I relate to my brother out of my anger. And Jesus is saying, this is dangerous for your souls. First. Second, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, this is a, 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 an Aramaic expression that you, you, you spit while speaking. So Raka, just this, this treating a brother with contempt. Anybody who does that is answerable to the council. Anyone who says, you fool. Anyone who says that a person is outside the capacity of God's redemptive ability. Because the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Anyone who makes the decision that somebody is beyond the pale, that is untouchable, unreachable, anybody who has dismissed another is himself in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus... Um, is saying to us at fundamental levels, it's not okay to be angry, right? 
Paul echoes this when in Ephesians he says this. In your anger, do not sin. Notice, the anger part's not the sin part. The anger part can, however, lead to sin. So he says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Anger serves, Paul seems to suggest, as a trigger mechanism that is not good to govern behavior. So what is the gift of anger that Paul is referring to here that we can um, uh, uh, get angry without being angry? So his solution is to not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Please notice I've said this before, but I want to underline it. This does not mean you have to resolve everything before nightfall. It means you have to let your anger go before nightfall. The issue that occasioned the anger may still persist and require some working through over time. But the anger that prompted the conversation in the first place, that needs to go away so that we can have honest conversation and dialogue. Does that make sense? Then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 4 a little bit later on. He says, get rid of bitterness. Get rid of rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. It's not to be part of the journey of the life any more than these other kinds of things are. Because, again, all of these things, while directed outward at other people, ultimately damage and destroy us way more than the people that they are directed to. Right? So then finally, James, Jesus' little brother, says this. Dear brothers, take note of this. Here's his strategy. Everybody should be quick to listen, but slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Why? Because our anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. How many can bear witness to that? Right? So, James's strategy that we want to spend the rest of our time exploring is be quick to hear, but slow to speak. Slow to come to uh, anger, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So the question is, how do we become slow to speak? How do we become the kinds of people who are slow to get angry? That's the trick. That's the question. Um, In contrast with all of these passages, I want to give equal time in a moment to the other side, which, in which it is clear that Jesus himself got angry. Right? He got angry, for example, when the disciples prohibited children from coming to him. He got angry at the tomb of Lazarus, the, the word there in John that, that, that registers his visceral response to this death is is the same word that John uses elsewhere and others use elsewhere to talk about anger. Jesus was angry in the face of death. When money changers blocked access to the Gentiles, uh, to the place of worship, remember he cleanses the temple? His, 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 that occasioned anger for him. Or when the Pharisees attempted to trap him in Mark chapter 6 by, by bringing a man with a withered hand into the sanctuary and Jesus Walks into their trap and turns it around on them and asks them a piercing question about whether Sabbath is for man or essentially whether Sabbath is for man or man for the Sabbath. And they didn't answer him. His response was anger. 
So anger is not the problem. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's sacrifice was accepted, if you're familiar with the story. And Cain becomes angry. And God says to him, what's the problem? Anger is okay, but you've got sin is crouching at the door. You've got to overcome it. Cain hadn't sinned in his anger at even God. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he did. Let me think about that. I just hate when that happens. So what do we do with this? How do we think about this? Let me just say a couple of things. Uh, I believe that anger is a gift. And it's a gift for a very particular purpose, which, like many other gifts, we have taken and applied in places that it doesn't belong. Here's, here's what I mean. The anger, I think of as a protector emotion. That is, we have our core emotions of love and joy that are the fuel cell, the core of our being. And then we have three protector emotions that help us identify and then process things that go, go wrong. We have sadness that allows us to process, identify and process loss. We have fear that allows us to identify and process threat. But then we have anger that allows us to identify and respond to process boundary violations. Places where, where we are, are taken advantage of physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, uh, socially or intellectually. It's easier to illustrate with physical boundary violation, right? If somebody touches you in a way that is a boundary that is inappropriate for the nature of the relationship you have with that person, we are given anger to indicate that a boundary violation has taken place. Does that make sense? That, that there's a, a surge of energy that indicates something has been violated here. Now, how do we respond to that rather than just react to it? So we need to learn... How to, how, to, how to manage, the getting angry is the part, now what? I want anger to go back out of the system so I can respond to the violation with the energy perhaps that anger gave me, but not necessarily in anger. So this is, this is the point. The difference then is between getting angry and, and remaining angry, being, continuing anger. So we misuse anger because we tend to regard any and all boundary violations as if they were life-threatening, as if somebody were actually going to do us massive harm. And so we react out of mistrained reality. When we use uh, anger proactively, sometimes we use it as a way of power, a way of control, without, tri- without a triggering boundary violation, because we've, we've learned, especially if you grew up in a, as, as a small person in your own thinking, you used anger as a way to become big when you felt small. Does that make sense? Like the cat in the corner that puffs up its, its tail and, and arches its back, trying to become as big as it can because it wants to signal, don't mess with me, don't mess with me. Right? We do that as persons. We, we, when we feel small, when we feel insignificant, when we feel afraid, anger becomes our friend signaling size when we feel tiny and insignificant. Does that make sense? 
So anger, uh, when we feel uh, uh, small and insignificant or dismissed or trivialized, when our will is violated. But here's the problem. Ang- anger is not really finely tuned unless it's properly trained. So the complete stranger on the 405 freeway who cuts me off on the way to church on Sunday morning <laughs> has the capacity to ruin my day. Who gives him that capacity? I do. Right? Is it a real threat? Possibly. How do I respond to it instead of reacting to it? And, and notice we do that with, with the, the, the imagined slights of a friend. Right? The deliberate insults of a person who we have allowed to slip into the enemy category. We react to them all the same way. So anger has become this blunt instrument that 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 teaches us in 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 in, in mis, that allows us to misuse it uh, in some pretty damaging ways. Because anger is fundamentally essential for healthy, intimate community. If I don't know where the boundaries are and I don't recognize how they're violated, I can't respond. I will always inevitably react. So I want to learn, is the bound, what is the boundary that's been violated? What is my response to that violation? And is my response appropriate to the level, the nature, the severity of the violation? How many of you recognize sometimes you overreact? Right? You, 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 in fact, you don't overreact, you act before. Right? And, and okay, so that's a misuse, that's a mistraining. That's a misapplication of the gift of anger. Has how one of the questions I want to look at for me as a kid. I grew up. Um, uh, uh, um, I, I grew up as as uh, uh, a kid in a in a big family, not large numbers, but I'm the smallest kid in my whole cousin family on my dad's side. I have girl cousins that are bigger than I am. When, when I was a kid growing up. In fact, uh, at a family reunion here uh, a couple of years ago, somebody had the brilliant idea of lining us up according to height because we've all pride ourselves, prided ourselves as, you know, these big Dutch uh, tall people, and, and I don't fit into that category. I take after my mom's side, which I discovered uh, uh, when I saw that picture. Um, so so here, here we all are. Here we all are. And so as a kid, uh, at, at, at 14, 15, going into high school, I'm 5'3", I weigh 95 pounds, have a pocket protector. <laughs> I, I, I love chess. I carry a briefcase to high school. I'm that guy. I'm that kid, right? Anger was my friend because it was my way of saying, because I have no athletic ability at all. I have I, I, I just don't all of the things. Does that make sense? All of the things that in the culture that I grew up with signaled value and significance I didn't have. So anger became my friend and it turned out I could lose my temper lightning fast. I could hit things. I could I broke a piano once by whacking it just to let people know I was to be taken seriously. My dad took me very seriously um, (laughs) because it was my piano that I broke, but that's a whole other thing. What's going on there? What's going on there? It's the tiny who seeks to become big and taken seriously, which underlines what Gregory the Great says is the root of anger. 
It's one of the seven deadly sins. Remember, we talked about it a couple of years ago, if you want to go back on the podcast in, this, in the Lenten series. We talked about the seven deadly sins, and one of them is anger. Gregory said, sin ultimately is a distortion of love. And anger particularly is an outgrowth, an expression of fear, of insecurity, of powerlessness, with the result that I have insufficient love for myself, which produces an inadequate love for others and is rooted in a failure to receive and live in the love that God has for me. So, for Gregory the Great, one of the greatest spiritual directors in the history of, of, of the church, he said that anger is ultimately failure to receive and live in and then out of God's love for myself and for others. As a result, I'm left on my own. I've got to make this work by myself. Nobody has got my back. I've got to do this on my own. And when I feel then weak or insecure or dismissed... What do I do? I seek to become as big as I can. I seek to get the first strike in. I seek all of these ways of managing an insecurity that is rooted in failure to receive God's love in the first place. Does that make sense? As a result, the gift of anger ends up, especially in my growing up, uh, being dismissed and set aside. So now I feel guilty Goodness. Now I feel guilty uh, for, for that temper which needed, instead of being dismissed, to be properly trained. Now notice, in all of the examples I gave you, Jesus never got angry when his boundaries were violated. He only got angry when the boundaries of others were violated. Okay, I think we're on to something here. If we want to accomplish the righteousness of God, we need to train ourselves in slowness of speaking, rapidity of hearing, and slowness to anger. So the questions, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, is how do we do that? Well, fortunately, Gregory had some ideas. He gave us some practices that cooperate with the Holy Spirit to transform us. Because these practices that we'll talk about, spiritual disciplines, don't have as their goal transformation. They have as their goal cooperation with the Holy Spirit who actually is the one who does the work of transformation. Does that make sense? So in these disciplines, I'm not counting on them, counting to ten or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever. I'm not counting on them to retrain anger. I'm counting on them to open me up more to the work of the Spirit so that He can transform and retrain me in the patterns and ways of, of anger. Does that make sense? So here they are. Anger is rooted in insecurity and fear. The primary disciplines that we need to engage in are those that remind us who we are and, more important, whose we are. So what are those disciplines? There are three that we want to talk briefly about this morning. The first one is solitude. Sounds strange, but the first place that we go, and, and challenging and difficult it has always been, but we, in solitude, we choose to separate ourselves from defining relationships, 
We create a bit of a buffer. We create a little bit of space. Not simply so that I can be alone, but I can be alone with my Father. You'll notice how often Jesus did this. He gets up a great while before it's day and goes to a lonely place where he communes with his Father. Do you think that might be a good idea for us? Right? It's, it's difficult for us. It's challenging for us. Some of us are so afraid of being alone. But at the end of the day, it is the only thing that will enable us to stop being afraid of being alone. You lean in. You embrace the pain of, of that loneliness. Uh, uh, aloneness. What we're afraid of uh, and what we mistake is being lonely with being alone. Loneliness is a social environmental condition, right? How many have discovered how easy it is, however, to be lonely even though you're surrounded by a crowd? It's not about being with people. The only way to push back against loneliness is to learn how to be completely content alone. Then you're never going to be lonely. So the way we learn that is this solitude. The goal here is to be alone, separated from defining and demanding relationships so that I can be present to God who is present with me, to come and spend time with Him. Uh, all the way from many solitudes of three to four or five minutes while waiting at, maybe at a, at a red light. Or maybe getting up before the rest of the family and grabbing a cup of coffee and going out on the deck or or sitting in, your, in, in, in a chair in, in the, in, at, at home, or maybe just going for a walk, starting with those mini solitudes that extend maybe up to uh, maybe days-long retreats. Brendan Manning attributed uh, his, his transformative journey to extended periods of time on a regular basis where he would go and spend days and weeks sometimes in complete and utter solitude. Um, extreme? Well, I, I don't know. How, how insecure are you? How much alone with Jesus do you need before you start to believe that He really, genuinely loves you without regard to your performance? How much time do you need to spend with a father Hearing the voice from the heavens, you are my beloved, you are my beloved, you are my beloved. How many know God's speaking all the time and our capacity to hear is blocked out by the noise? So the second primary discipline that we engage in is silence. Making space to hear God's voice. Silence has two components. The first one is reducing as much as possible the noise around us. Turning off the radio, turning off the TV, uh, not walking around constantly plugged in. Some of us, uh, I, I know this is my, my, used to be my practice, to get in the car and I didn't have to turn the radio or the, or the uh, player on, right? It was already going when the car started. When the TV, I walk in and I turn on the TV. I, I'm not even watching anything. It's just the noise. Just the sound. Right? And we, we fill our lives with this sound and then wonder why we can't hear the voice of God. So, so we begin by reducing gradually, incrementally, perhaps fasting, 
these external sounds. I'm not going to I'm going to I'm going to ride to work today without plugging in. I'm going to ride to work today without turning it on. I'm going to ride to work today. I'm going to when I go home, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to at least give myself a half an hour in which I don't turn on the TV or 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 whatever. I'm seeking to reduce then having reduced some of the external noise. Now I want to work on the internal noise. The noise that I carry from within me, the noise that has been 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 bubbling up and 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 percolating as an inner condition for most of my life. Now, uh, for those of you who are extroverts, simply eliminating a lot of the external noise will almost, not always, but quickly plunge you into internal silence, because you take so much of the energy of your soul from external conditions. That's fine. That's that's the nature of extroversion. So when you start to eliminate that, your soul comes to a place of stillness fairly quickly. But if you're an introvert, uh, it's going to take you a lot longer. Because we introverts carry all kinds of noise around inside our heads without any reference to anybody else outside. Does that make sense? Uh, So as an introvert, I carry on extended conversations with myself all the time. So I don't need other people in the room to have conversations. I don't need to be talking I, out loud. I can I carry this all inside. So so even though I eliminate the silence, what I've discovered is that all that does is is amplify the noise inside, right? And it, and and so I have to I have to start to press in with with disciplines of meditation, with disciplines of training of mindfulness, taking a passage of Scripture, taking a, 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 an idea, a thought, and gently bringing my mind back to it. Because in the words of, of one of the desert fathers, when you go into silence, don't be surprised if every monkey in every tree starts leaping. Does that describe the inner, inner condition? So for me, it took me almost three and a half years of regularly entering into silence before it got still one time. And I got to tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because what you hear in the silence is what you have longed to hear more than anything else for your whole life. You hear the sound of the thin silence that is God's favorite voice. And what you hear in the silence is what you'd expect to hear. I love you. I know who you are. I know your name. You're precious to me. Let's just be still and know. That stillness is received almost as pure gift. And then we reintroduce silence externally. This is the second thing. Where we limit our speaking. One of the disciplines I ask my students to do um, uh, in the spiritual disciplines class is to go 24 hours without speaking on a college campus. Speaking only for hospitality's sake, to put people at ease but deliberately choosing not to engage in conversations that they might otherwise or making comments that they might otherwise and so on and so forth. And, and the challenge for them, as you might imagine, is what if, what if I'm not noticed? 
What if, what if, what if nobody takes notice of me? Please notice what that reveals, right? I'm not enough in my relationship with God. I have to be noticed by others to be someone. We're afraid of being insignificant, unsigned. How many of our words, though, are about spin, control, manipulation, shaping perceptions so that we're never, ever, ever misunderstood, only to discover that all of our words don't help people understand us any better? Presence is what we're after. This is how we take James seriously. We consider whether what we say will improve on the silence. And you know how this works if you've got somebody in a group of people who is a listener. One of the greatest gifts to a a, a group decision-making process is the person who doesn't say anything, but who listens and seeks to understand. And at the end says, it seems to me this is what we are saying. How can that person do that? Because they're listening at a core, deeper level that is not about insecurity or fear, but is about a solid sense of self as beloved. So solitude, silence, and then the final one is Sabbath. It starts to push back against anger. This fourth word um, is the primary way by which we learn how to take Jesus seriously when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, commandments, or words one through three, because you recognize when I say fourth word that we're referencing the so-called Ten Commandments, right? And and you'll remember we've talked about this before, that the word commandment does not appear in either the Exodus or Deuteronomy version of that. So these are not ten commandments, do this or else. These are ten words of life. That's the word that is there. These are the ten words. So the first three words are about loving God well. No graven image. Don't take the name in vain. No other gods. Right? The words numbers five through nine are how to love your neighbor well. Remember Jesus said... Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So commandments 5 through 9 are how, or words nine, 5 through 9, are how do I love my neighbor? Don't commit murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't, uh, don't steal. Right? These are how we love neighbor. Uh, commandment number 10, or word number 10, is how we enter into the violation of the other nine where we want things that don't belong to us, where we covet. Take coveting off the table. It's not going to do anybody any good. Right? So that leaves number four. Guess what number four is? Keep the Sabbath day. This is how we love ourselves well. Remember what Jesus said. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So word number four, Sabbath, Deliberately creating one day in seven in which we are completely and utterly undefined by performance, by work. We let love soak in. Our soul calms down. He leads us beside quiet waters. He leads us in green pastures. He restores our soul. We're intended to have those pillars every seven days. 
one of them, every seven days, where we recalibrate, where we remember who we are, where we remember who God is. It's a primary way of, of, of receiving the love of God for us, a primary way by which we learn to love ourselves. So notice, how does this transform anger? We become non-anxious, non-fearful. We calm down. We become a restful presence. We have a buffer in our relationships. There's lots of grace in between the ball bearings of our relational connectedness. There's, we learn non-frantic and non-frenetic living. How much of our anger arises because we're mapped so tightly to our schedule that when something goes sideways somewhere, everything else falls off the plate. What would happen if we just calmed down and could be interruptible like Jesus was? We disconnect provision from performance. We disconnect love from performance. And grace becomes part of our self-understanding. So these are some of the ways, three ways, solitude, silence, Sabbath, that begin to push back against a culture that is defined by anger so that we can relearn it. Does that sound, sound good? Let's pray. I'm going to ask Faith to come back. Um, and, and I want to do something in response this morning because um, I recognize, as Darren alluded in, in the announcements, that when we talk about anger, it's, it's often something that is, is challenging for us. So I'm going to ask you to do something. If you're here and, and anger has become a primary way of life for you, and you are ready to invite Jesus into that and ask him to teach you how to get angry but not be angry. If you're ready to invite Jesus to, by his spirit, train you in appropriate and healthy anger that recognizes the violations of the rights of others and is willing sometimes to let your own rights be violated in the service of those others. In a moment or two, I'm going to ask you to come and let us pray for you. Let us pray not for a quick transformative moment, but for a reorientation of journey where we can learn the rhythms that Jesus learned so that we can live the way that Jesus lived. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your commitment to us. And I pray now, Lord that as we spend some time here, that you would be glorified in this stillness. That we would hear your love for us. That we would learn to walk in love. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.